so critical in our toughest times when we're hoping for things, when we're wishing for things, to really ask, what can I do to, to turn that hope into action? What can I do today? So going to the expert, asking questions is important, but maybe it's giving a blood sample for research, or maybe it's raising some money for your rare disease. But I think it's just, it's about saying, I can't guarantee that there's going to be a drug for your disease or that your action is going to result in a life-saving therapy. But I can tell you that if none of us take action, no progress is going to be made. Hello, everyone. This is Bon Koo, and welcome to another episode of Design Lab. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? It's been a crazy week for us. My producer, Rob, and I, we are part of a team in Philadelphia that has been designing and operating pop-up COVID vaccine sites. We want to make it as convenient as possible for anyone to get a vaccine. If you have not been vaccinated yet, please schedule an appointment to get a vaccine. People still can't get the vaccine because there's some barriers. Some people may be afraid or have misinformation. Some people may not have transportation. So that's my public service announcement for today. On today's guest, we have David Fagenbaum. He is an inspiration to me. David is redesigning how we search for cures. I first met David several years ago when I heard him speak at a healthcare conference on his personal journey as a disease hunter. David's a physician scientist and a national best-selling author of Chasing My Cure, a doctor's race to turn hope into action. He went from being a college quarterback at Georgetown University to receiving his last rites while in medical school and nearly dying four more times battling Castleman's disease. In order to try to save his own life, David spearheaded an innovative approach to research through the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and discover a treatment that is saving his life and others. He described his journey and lessons in Chasing My Cure, which was named one of the best nonfiction books of 2019. David's been profiled by Good Morning America, CNN, BBC News, and he's leading an effort to find treatments for Castleman's disease, COVID-19, and other diseases. David has been profiled in a cover story by the New York Times, recognized on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, and also has been recognized by multiple other media outlets. We love it when we hear from listeners, so reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram or email. My Twitter handle is at B-O-N-K-U. My Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Email is B-O-N at designlabpod.com. As you may notice, we don't have any sponsors on the show. We don't have a Patreon, but you can still support us, and it's really simple to do so. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment, and follow us on whatever platform you use to consume podcasts. Okay, here's my conversation with David Fagebaum. David Fagebaum, welcome to Design Lab. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of yours, as you know. Uh, very, it's very mutual. <laughs> so you played Division One football at Georgetown University, and you're also a weightlifter. In in your book, it says your friends called you the Beast. What where did that term come from? 
That, that's right. And I, the reason I started to laugh when you mentioned that is that if the listeners could see me right now, they would be like, you, you're lying, Bond. He, he definitely didn't play college football and he definitely was not not a, a championship weightlifter. But now I've, I've, I, seen, I've seen a picture of you without your shirt on when you're in your early 20s. You are you were a beast. That's so that's right. I, I was a beast. The past tense is important to, to use. But yeah, so I yeah, my, my nickname was was the beast, which again, I, I look these days, I, I look more like maybe I would get ravaged by a beast. But but back in the day, I yeah, I was a, a college football player and, and, and worked out all the time. What's your record for your bench press? I benched about 375 pounds. Oh my to, to, to be exact, right? It was, it was somewhere around, I think it was about 375. <laughs> I, I, I still weightlift a lot. That's one of my daily routines. And to give listeners a perspective, I can't even deadlift 375 pounds. My record, I think it's 365. So, so thinking of nice. like putting that bar on your chest and lifting yeah. 375 pounds, that is craziness. That's like superhuman. Yeah, I was, and, and I was deadlifting back then in, in the high five hundreds. So oh I was, I was, I was in very good shape, but but not not as much anymore. I've got the full dad bod embrace <laughs> these days. Let's get into Castleman's disease. So it's a disease that literally almost killed you five times. You were diagnosed at age uh, twenty five, and you were a med student at Penn. That's where I went to undergrad and did my fellowship there. What is Castleman's disease? Sure. It's a disease where the immune system for no known reason becomes highly activated and then starts to attack your vital organs. So your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, your lungs, and it creates multi-organ failure. You end up in the hospital with all of your organs shutting down. And in my case, it took weeks and weeks to finally figure out what the diagnosis was. And you have a memoir on your journey of actually getting your diagnosis, searching for um, a, a cure. Can you tell us about your memoir, why you decided to write that? Sure. Yeah. The, the book's called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. And the, the, the subtitle, that second part of the title, I think explains why I felt like I needed to write it. And that's that, as you mentioned, I became critically ill while I was a medical student. I spent months hospitalized. I even had my last rites read to me because the doctors didn't think I was going to survive. And wait, 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 wanted- wait. So like literally, well, like a priest came into your hospital room and read you your last came into my room. And and that was after I already said goodbye to my dad and my sisters. And so I don't know which one, well, they were all awful. I don't know what was worse though. I mean, it was the the saying goodbye and then literally having a a Catholic priest come into the room and, and do this, uh, this ritual. And, and that was just the first time that, that I almost died. And so fortunately within about 48 hours of having my last rites read to me and, and saying goodbye to everyone, the diagnosis was finally made of Castleman disease. And it was with that diagnosis that I got started on chemotherapy. And basically for Castleman's, the immune system gets totally out of control and we don't know what to target. So if you give someone chemotherapy, you just wipe out the whole immune system. You can control it at least partially. So they did that. And that's what saved my life the first time. But unfortunately I would go on in a six month period to nearly die two more times. Uh, again, thank, oh thankfully. Oh my gosh treatment saved my life. And so you asked why I wrote this book. It's because I then went on this journey to try to find a drug that could save my life. And unfortunately I went on to have a number of relapses. I nearly died five times in a three and a half year period. 
And with each of those, I spent months hospitalized. And, and with each one, I never thought there was even a possibility that I could survive. But I kept finding myself hoping so badly that some researcher somewhere would find a drug that could save my life. Mm. And Bon, it was when I nearly died for the fourth time and I failed to respond to the only drug in development that I realized that if I'm going to hope for something, if I'm going to hope for a treatment, I need to take action. And so I started searching for a treatment, eventually found a drug that saved my life. And so it's it was both a combination of the lessons I learned from my journey. I mean, I'm, I'm a different person because of all of the ups and downs. Those lessons I felt like I needed to share with the world. And then tangibly also the fact that I found this drug that's saving my life. And it was just sitting at my neighborhood pharmacy and no one had ever thought to try it. That is a war cry that I want to make that like these drugs are out there. We've just got to figure out ways to get to them. I want to take a deep dive into there's a lot of threads and tabs I want to open up there. Before opening up those tabs, you had to wear so many different hats along this journey of your patient, your physician, your scientist, you're a disease cure hunter. And you went through some really extreme measures to treat yourself. You at one point even became a test subject for yeah. a new treatment that was never even used for calcimans. Is that right? That's right. Well, what was that like? And did I freak out the doctors treating you? Uh, I think yes uh, to all of the above. It For me, I, I followed exactly kind of the protocols for how do you treat calcimans? How do you monitor it? How do you manage it for, for multiple years? And as I mentioned, I kept having a relapse after a relapse. And it was my fourth relapse that occurred while I was on an experimental drug that we were all really hopeful was going to work for Castleman, it was undergoing a large clinical trial. And we felt that I thought this was the treatment that I'd been praying for and hoping for and wishing for, like, it's here, like, it's going to help me. And when it didn't, and when I was back in the ICU and in, in critical condition, and my doctor explained to me that the medical community was out of options. I mean, he, he literally said, there are no more drugs in development. There aren't even promising leads that I realized that I would need to really do anything in my power to find something. And, and, and Bon, it's not that I was naive and thinking like, I'm going to chase after my cure and I'm going to find it. I mean, I hoped I would, but honestly, my mentality was, okay, if I've got a few months to live mm. and there's a 0% chance of survival, if I don't find something, and there's like a one in a million chance of survival, if I, that I could find something. I'm just going to go out swinging. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can. So that way, when I go out, I will have known that I, I did everything I could, but it certainly wasn't the idea that I was going to find something. And so it was in this process of, of trying to go out swinging that I eventually found a drug that I thought could be helpful. And actually to your point, the only reason that I found that it could be helpful is because in the weeks leading up to my fifth uh, flare of this disease, I was collecting blood samples on myself in, in those weeks because I knew that I was going to relapse. I knew that the drugs I was on we're not going to work. And so- Wait, wait, what, what do you mean you're collecting blood samples on yourself? So I, I mean that I was going to the phlebotomist and getting blood draws and then, and then processing them and putting them in, in, in a 
I was cryopreserving them. They were literally being put in the freezer because so that way was that your treatment team was suggesting that, or you as a scientist? No, I, like, I as a scientist, I had a protocol for Castleman's research, and then there, I, was, I was the only patient at the time, and so whoa. so I was collecting blood samples, and maybe even more intense because it's one thing to give a blood sample, but actually when I did go on to relapse, like I knew that I would, I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I was on three chemotherapy drugs at the time. And I didn't think they were going to work because I had relapsed on them previously. So I was still on them because I hoped they would work, of course. But I kept getting these blood samples, storing them. But what was maybe more intense was when I did relapse and when I was back in the hospital, I actually asked my clinical team to do a lymph node biopsy on me. And there is a clinical rationale, and that's that Castleman's, we actually don't know whether to categorize it is more of an autoimmune disease or more of a lymphoma. It kind of has features of both. It's considered like an atypical lymphoproliferative disorder. And so the lymph node biopsy can be justified because it's possible I could have gone on to develop lymphoma. And so a biopsy would be needed to determine that. But the reason I really wanted that biopsy done is because if I survived, I wanted to have the samples to work on. Mm -hmm. And so, so thankfully I did survive. I got a combination of seven different chemotherapies, Bon. It was miserable, but, but the same combination of seven chemotherapies that had saved my life multiple times before they worked to save my life again. But at this stage, I knew I was going to relapse again. But the difference this time is that now I had blood samples and I had a lymph node that I could work on. And, and I, I just went to work. If you didn't take those extreme measures of doing this painful procedure on yourself, suggesting that to your clinical team, do you think you would have survived? No, I, I think that I feel uh, almost 100% certain that without those blood samples and without that lymph node, that there's no way we would have gotten to the drug that I'm on. And, and I think it's really unlikely I would have survived. And how lethal is Castleman's? So with each Castleman's flare, I mentioned I've had five of them. There's about a 20% mortality associated with each flare. And so if you flare once every five years, uh, you, you can kind of do the math. But if you're flaring, in my case, I had five of them in the first three years. And so that's basically, I mean, a 20% mortality is what happens when you play Russian roulette, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, it's five, five games of Russian roulette in, and, and at that stage it was and not only without relapsing, but they were at very short intervals. And so, yeah, I just knew I was running out of time. And you're in remission now, but that doesn't mean you're cured, right? Because every time I've, you know, we've had a chance to hang out with each other several times over the past years and you always look great and healthy, but you're not cured yet, right? That's right. I still take the same medication every day. It's, it's called serolimus. It was approved for kidney transplantation mm -hmm. 30 years ago. There's actually this really incredible story about how serolimus was discovered. It was found in the soil of an island, an Easter Island, in fact. And, and this is decades ago, it was found in the soil. It's produced by bacteria in the soil of Easter Island. And a, a research lab like basically dug up the soil and took it back to the lab. They found that it had these really interesting properties. And here I am decades later, alive because of it. It's a really incredible story. I actually go into lots of detail in Chasing My Cure on it. And, and so... I would have never tried this drug if not for not for the research that we did. And, and because of this drug, I'm alive today. But like you said, um, my book is called Chasing My Cure, but it's certainly not a, a, a cure, uh, or at least we don't know if it is. Yeah. I'm going to keep taking these same three pills every day. Anytime you see me, I can guarantee you I will have taken my three pills that morning. I want to shift gears and talk about 
Santa Claus theory. What the heck is that? So maybe I'm just really naive, but the way that I lived life up until I got really sick was that I had this idea that for every big problem in the world, there must be a team of people working to come up with a solution, working diligently day and night, collaborating with others, kind of like Santa and his workshop, right? That like, you know, everyone's working together. And then I had this idea that not only were they collaborating, working together, but that as soon as you needed the answer, they would kind of deliver it to you kind of wrapped in a bow. It was kind of how I looked at the world. And it's a slight exaggeration, but really I felt that for all the big problems, people were working on it and they were working together. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I became critically ill with this rare disease. And I learned that very few people were working on this deadly condition. And the few people that were working on it weren't working together. And and that really was kind of mind blowing for me. And I reflected back on, well, why do I have this sense that people must be solving problems? And I think part of it relates to the world we live in. When we think about, if we have a question, like what causes this disease? If you go to Google and you start typing in what causes Google will finish the sentence for you. And you're like, oh my gosh, I guess like Google knows like what my question is. And then there's like a thousand answers and you're like, wow, I guess we've like figured it out. And, and so I think there's this general sense that like all important questions have either been answered or they're being answered and that people are working together, especially in healthcare. I mean, of course they must be working together, like lives are in the line. And then I learned that wasn't the case. Your book came out as the same time that our that's tv show is on came out mm-hmm. with almost the same name it's called chasing the cure and i got to experience the santa claus theory as well because we brought on patients who are undiagnosed with rare symptoms and i got so disillusioned with the american medical system i, I love the healthcare system in so many ways mm-hmm. we have so many bright minds working hard and the fact, you know, so many miracles like the MRNA, we have our COVID vaccine, miracle. But then there were all these patients I met on the TV show that went going on for years, not getting a diagnosis. And because I think we assume that some bright team of researchers or doctors are going to be working hard for them, but there are so many silos. There's one mother and daughter, uh, Deborah and Delaney, who had this rare condition. They were going blind and they had uh, some skin conditions associated with that. And we were able to do some like whole genome DNA sequencing on them and discover that they had this disease called Wahlberg Sonati syndrome. And they were like the seventh and eighth like patients in the world diagnosed with that. Wow. But we were, we were able to do just because of like the resources that the television show had that we actually connected with the researchers in Italy who had wrote that paper, connecting them with the company, with doctors. They, we connected. We were able to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it reminded me of your journey of, we think someone's working on it, but often it's not. Like, I don't know. And I think a lot of patients think that too, right? I totally agree. And I think the problem is that there are so many, I mean, you talked about whole XM sequencing, there are so many technologies out there that if appropriately harnessed would have such an incredible impact on humankind. But there's a problem in this match between what we're capable of doing and then what we actually do. And the only way that we can actually get closer to what we're capable of doing is having really smart people like you and others 
bringing these things together, connecting the dots, making sure that this resource is utilized in this way. And for me, it feels too random, right? Like, I think that that's the thing that maybe is so disillusioning is that I'm alive because we found this drug and, and, and I certainly turned my hope into action. But a lot of things had to line up for this yeah. to happen. I, I had to be a medical student at the time. I mean, if I wasn't a med student, I'm not getting lymph nodes and blood samples that I can then put in the freezer, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I had to be a medical student. All of these things had to line up. And so where I spend my time now is trying to figure out, A, how can I generate insights so that way random things don't have to line up and drugs can be found for patients? Like, how can I do the work to figure out this drug should be used for this disease. And then B, how can we create a system that these things happen routinely and efficiently, and they don't require a med student getting a disease to figure out that serotonin might be a treatment for it. Do you think, so you started a, a research network around Castleman's and do you think that can serve as a model for other diseases of how we could redesign and reimagine our ways of finding cures for rare diseases? I do. I think there are a couple components of what we've done through the Castle Disease Collaborative Network that thankfully have actually already been scaled to other diseases. We partnered with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative about two and a half years ago to establish something called the Rare as One Initiative. And basically that's an effort to model and scale what we've done for Castleman's to, to now it, it's over 30 rare diseases, but there's a whole nother cohort of 20 to 30 that'll be coming on soon. So it'll be over 50 rare diseases, basically following our model. And really the fundamental aspects of what we do, I can boil it down to two things and they may seem simple, but they're important. The first is that research generally occurs very randomly. So basically some doctor somewhere or researcher comes up with some research idea and applies for funding for it. And then a group says yay or nay, and you either get the money or you don't. And then the research happens. And the problem with that approach is that you basically, for any one rare disease, you have to hope that the right researcher has the right research idea at the right time and also the right skill set to do the work. And any research idea that is conceived by someone has to be, in order for it to happen, it, ha it has to be conceived by someone who can actually do the work. And so in our case, we said, let's separate out ideas from action. So let's actually ask our entire community, physicians, researchers, and patients, what research questions should be asked? Mm. What studies should be done? Once we crowdsourced those ideas, the first time we did it, we got 67 ideas just this past, over the last three months, we've recently um, done another iteration. We got 155 ideas. And so you take all of these ideas and then you have an expert panel prioritize, okay, what's one, two, three, four, five. And then you say, who's the world expert for one, two, three, four, five. And you go to them and you say, I've got money, I've got samples and I've got data for you. Will you do the research? And researchers love to do research. What we don't love to do is write grants and have to figure out kind of the logistics. And so this is a way to say, we're going to match brilliant ideas to brilliant researchers. We're not just going to hope that some researcher that's brilliant will have a brilliant idea because frankly, it doesn't happen very often mm. that those things align on their own. And so, so this idea of crowdsourcing community prioritized research ideas has been fundamental to our success. That, that's one. And then the second is that when we learn something from these community prioritized research projects about Castleman disease, the first question we ask is what drugs are already FDA approved that can fix that problem that we just found? Mm. Not can we develop a new drug that's going to take 20 years and $2 billion, but what do we already have in our back pocket? And then we start repurposing it. 
We have a lot of designers who listen to the show. And when I heard you talking about your principles and methods, it sounds a lot like a designer. You use these same design methods of brainstorming, you co-design with patients. It's not mm -hmm. just only researchers and clinicians driving it, but this principle of co-design with the end users, a lot of iteration. Iteration. And I, I mean, you speak like a design, you're like a design researcher, you know, like it's pretty, pretty incredible. I think your principles and methods can resonate with a lot of our listeners around design. So, well, that's partly why, why we connected years ago is because I heard about the awesome work that you were doing. And I was like, I got to connect with Bond. I mean, there's so much here around the science of science, right? It's like, how do you do science efficiently that for me, I, I was so surprised that it was such an issue of design and, and maybe much less an issue of medicine and technology. Yeah. And we had a chance to speak on a panel with Susanna Fox right before the pandemic started last year. It was at a national health policy conference. And then we spoke about crowdsourcing and uh, there were some folks from the NIH in the audience. And one of the comments I thought was so profound was he said that you all aren't creating anything new or new technology. You're just able to connect the dots yeah. and, and that makes such a difference. And yeah, it's amazing how it could be so simple sometimes the so solution. Simple. So if it's so simple, like what the heck are the barriers? I Why totally isn't everyone agree. doing this? I totally agree. And I think that from a patient perspective, it gives me hope to know that the, the dots are there. They just need to be connected. It's not a problem where, okay, you've got Castleman disease and there's zero likelihood that any drug currently out there is ever going to help you. It's okay. You have Castleman disease. And based on what we know right now, we don't have a drug for you, but there are 2,500 drugs that the FDA has approved for something that do things very well. And one of those 2,500 things that are already approved could actually help your Castleman disease. And that's a real game changer. And, and that's what we're trying to get more towards. Mm. I listened to your, your podcast with uh, Sanjay Gupta from CNN. That's pretty cool. I think he has a bit more of a following than I do. I don't know about that. <laughs> and uh, you had said this quote, this quote from you, you said, there might be drugs currently at our neighborhood pharmacy that can be a potential cure for your disease. And you talk about drug repurposing. What is drug repurposing? We've mentioned a little bit about it before. Yeah. So drug repurposing, well, first off, I should say it's what saved my life, but what is it? It's this idea that there are drugs that are approved. There's about 2,500 of them that the FDA has approved for something. And then there are all these diseases. There are about 10,000 human diseases, some of which have approved drugs, but most of which don't have an approved drug. And the idea of drug repurposing is really about systematically identifying the drugs that are approved and are there new uses that they may have and other diseases that maybe they haven't been tested. And it's really when, and I actually want to kind of change the term repurposing because repurposing almost infers that there was like an initial purpose. Like there's like some sort of mm. divine purpose to each drug. But the reality is that a drug gets approved for the first disease because a drug company decided to try that drug for that disease first. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's like the purpose of the drug. So it's really about, in my opinion, it's about optimizing or utilizing the full potential of every drug that we've got. Mm -hmm. Because if a drug has already become approved and it's already safe enough to get approved by the FDA, if it can be used in more ways than one, we should use it in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. And so it's really based on that principle. We've got a bunch of drugs approved. We've got a bunch of diseases. 
that need drugs and how do you match those two together? And this drug optimization was a method used during the pandemic, right? For COVID. That's exactly right. So when we think about the work that we've done for Castleman's, basically for the first you know, set of experiments were really defined that serolimus might be life-saving for me. Again, as we mentioned earlier, it's been around for years and it was at my neighborhood pharmacy. I mean, that's part of what inspired me to say that to Crazy. Sanjay. This drug was, I walked past it for, for three years and in between those walks past the pharmacy, I was also spending months in the ICU with this terrible disease. And then we finally figured out this drug could be helpful. And I was like, oh my gosh, this has literally been here for all these years. And so that sort of, that really resonated for me, like how many other things are in that pharmacy that could be helpful for you and you and you, right? And so, so that was the first step. And then after my last relapse and getting started on this drug, I ended up joining the faculty at Penn where I started a center called the Center for Cytokine Storm Treatment and Laboratory, and, and we're called the CASEL, that's our acronym. And, and through the CASEL, our goal is to understand immune dysfunction. Why does the immune system get out of control? Mm. Re really, it's not dysfunction in two weeks. It's really sometimes the immune system can, can be too strong. So, so why does it get out of control? And then what drugs are already FDA approved that could maybe, maybe get the immune system back under control? And thankfully, we've had a number of successes beyond serolimus. So JAK inhibitors are, are now being used in humans with Castleman's based on work we did in the lab. MAP kinase inhibitors are, are coming down the pipeline, CXCL13, mTOR2. There's additional ones. And what's so cool is that these drugs have been around for a long time and we're figuring out new uses for them. So you can imagine, Bon, right after I saw you last, which was right before the pandemic, uh -huh. I found myself on Friday the 13th of March, which was the day in 2020 that everything shut down. Yeah. About 10 p.m., I was sitting next to my wife and she she was fast asleep. And I was just thinking to myself, okay, there's this terrible pandemic that is emerging and people are talking about this issue of the of immune hyperactivation, that maybe it's not just the virus causing problems, but it's actually an overreaction to the virus that's making things so, mm. so bad. And then also that there are drugs being tried, drugs that are being repurposed. And I thought to myself, I said, gosh, I really hope that some lab out there can read through the work that we've done in Castleman disease and kind of build upon what we did. I, and then I thought to myself, I really, you know, I wish that we could do that. I wish we could kind of do that. And then I kind of put that thought aside for a second. And about a minute later, I was like, wait a minute, I'm alive because I wished for a treatment. And then I decided to take action about it. Maybe I shouldn't yeah. just hope that someone does it. Maybe we should do it. So we redirected our team to launch the Corona project to take this on. What's the Corona project? Sure. So it's where we systematically collect data on all drugs that have been given to any humans with COVID-19. And then we utilize that data to identify the drugs that look most promising to least promising. Everyone listening has heard about different drugs that have tried from hydroxychloroquine to yeah. cocilizumab to dexamethasone, remdesivir. These drugs have been all over the news and there's lots and lots of data on every one of those drugs. <clears throat> and these drugs weren't just created during the pandemic for COVID-19? Like these drugs were already out there, Rem remdesivir, which I've given, dexamethasone, hydroxychloroquine, right? They were all out yes. there before. And That's exactly right. But then how do we get, like how does, how does a clinical team when you're treating COVID-19 patients go, I'm just going to use this drug that was used in a different disease. Like how, how did that go about? So within covid Within the first three months, over 100 different drugs were tried in COVID patients. And as you said, none of these were developed for COVID. Just 100 drugs were pulled off shelves and said, let's see if it works. And that was really 
mind-blowing for us because as I said, there's only about 2,500 drugs the FDA has ever approved. So, so we're talking a hundred, that's a big fraction yeah. of all FDA approved drugs. And early on, it was really like, this patient's really sick. I'm just going to try this thing. Mm-hmm. And then numbers started adding up. And as early on in the pandemic, some drugs started looking really promising and there was like a lot of hype behind them. Yeah. And I was really, chloroquine. exactly. Yeah. I was, and I think all of us, we wanted these drugs to work, right? I mean, every one of us, there's yeah. no one could have not wanted them to work. We all wanted them to work. It was so but, confusing. I was so confused. Like we didn't know what to give, but we're like, we got to give something. We don't have anything besides oxygen. Absolutely. We all wanted something. And there were some really promising anecdotal reports. And so we built this data set to basically pull it all together to say, like, let's not just see what the headlines tell us. Let's actually look at the data. What we found in those in the first what was 9,000 patients and 100 different drugs was it became clear that thankfully in COVID, most people do recover from COVID, right? And so what that means is that if you just give 100 people a drug, most people will get better whether you give them the drug or you don't give them the drug. And so what that means is it's really hard to infer if you give one person a drug, whether that drug actually works or not, because maybe they would have gotten better anyway. It's a classic correlation does not imply causation, right? Exactly. Exactly. And when you study a disease like Castleman disease, where 0% of patients will improve without therapy, if you give someone a drug and they get better, Hey, you know, the drug worked because there's never been a reported case of anyone who's gotten better spontaneously. So that's easy. It's easy to do studies with Castleman's in that way. But in COVID, where 90 plus percent will recover within some amount of time, if 90 plus percent recover within some amount of time on a drug, you don't know if that drug actually yeah. helped or not. And it's that's hard, where these, it's hard to measure the effect. It is. And so that's where these randomized controlled trials really come in, where you randomly assign people to either get the drug or to get a placebo. And then you see what, what actually works. And so at the heart of what we've done with the Corona Project, we've actually reviewed through over 29,000 publications in the last year. And, and when I say we, it's a huge we. It's over 100 medical students from the Philadelphia area and beyond who have volunteered their nights and their weekends to read through 29,000 papers. Um, and so from the Talk 29, about crowdsourcing. I love it, but it's right? like, because if you would think of, it's easy just to give up, to go, hey, there's no way humanly possible, but you apply the same principle from Castleman disease of you're going to crowdsource out there. That's right. I mean, you or I, we could have tried to read 29,000 papers and make sense of it, but I think we would still be reading, right? And we actually, our team still is reading because papers keep coming out every day. But the idea is that if you can build a team to go through the 29,000, extract out all the really critical information and then make it freely and publicly available in an easy to use format so that the NIH, FDA, drug makers, whoever they are, can play with the data. We felt that could be a real game changer in this pandemic. And and it it really has been. I I tell people, it's like, you can either go and read the 29,000 papers, or you can just go to cdc.org slash corona and just check out the really important stuff from those 29,000 papers. What? There's no other group doing this. There's no other group doing this. Come on, come on. So when we started, this is the most incredible part. When we started back in March, I mentioned Friday the 13th was when we got started. I assumed, okay, we're going to do a 10 day challenge. We're going to read through the literature in 10 days. We're going to build this big team. And at some point, NIH, FDA, someone's going to you know dive in and, and do this. And, and that'll be great. So we do the 10 days. There's 115 drugs. There's 9,000 patients. And we're like, gosh, this really is important, but I don't see anyone else doing it. So I guess we'll kind of keep going maybe for another 10 days. And, and here we are 14, 15 months later, do, still doing it. And what's so incredible is 
there's a couple different groups that have really relied on our work. One of them is a group at the FDA that in fact, not only were they using our data, they actually asked us to start exporting our data to them. And so, wow. so on a weekly basis, we were sending our data to the FDA and we're thinking to ourselves, we're like, you know, this is the FDA with all the resources imaginable and, and they're using our data that a bunch of med students are volunteering their, their time to do. And so it was a completely volunteer effort for the first year. Again, supplying the FDA with data, supplying many in the NIH with data and trying to pick drugs that would look promising and Thankfully, towards the end of last year, the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, which of course is a cancer-focused organization, they kind of said what you said, which is like, this is really important. How is no one else doing it? Yeah. Okay, if you guys are doing it with a bunch of unpaid medical students, we'll give you guys a grant so you can actually like hire some people to do this like full-time because it's really important. So, so thankfully, we got funding to be able to actually pay data coordinators to do this really important work. And we're using that funding now, which, which has been great. But what's also been great in the last few months since we now have people on board is we've been able to really, I guess, expand our work and, and take it to the next level where right now, the data used in the Corona project is the primary data source that was used as part of identifying drugs for the most recent NIH trial in COVID. So it's mm -hmm. called Active 6. And we use the Corona database to pick what drugs should be included in the trial and which drugs shouldn't be included in the trial. And Bond, just I think you and your listeners would, would find this sort of dichotomy so interesting. One is that before the Corona project was used, the way that drugs were going to be selected for this and, and other studies like it is to request submissions of different drug ideas from companies. Mm -hmm. Do you make a drug that you think could be useful and you get those submissions and you pick the best one, or you can just go to the data and figure out what drugs look promising and say, I'm going to use this drug and this drug because we're the federal government. We can get our yeah. hands on it and we'll do a trial of what looks most promising as opposed to among the handful of applicants that we get, which to your point, that goes right back to exactly what the game changer was in Castleman's. That's amazing. And this can be applied not only to Castleman's and COVID, but other diseases, right? The same sort of Absolutely. methodology that, that you used. 100%. What advice do you have for patients who are struggling to find a treatment to get a diagnosis? Because there's many out there. I think the number one thing I would say is to find the expert. And so sometimes the expert you need isn't necessarily even the first expert you find, but to be aware of the fact that for every disease out there, there isn't necessarily a solution, but there generally is, is a, a resource or someone that you can go to that is at the cutting edge. So the first thing is find the expert. The next thing is once you get to the expert, ask lots and lots of questions. Don't just assume because you've kind of gotten there that that expert's going to have all the answers you ask them more and more questions. And then if that's not the right expert, go find another one. But then I think the third thing I would say, which is very much connected to the first two, is that it's so critical in our toughest times when we're hoping for things, when we're wishing for things, to really ask, what can I do to, to turn that hope into action? What can I do today? So going to the expert, asking questions is important, but maybe it's giving a blood sample for research, or maybe it's raising some money for your rare disease. But I think it's just, it's about saying, I can't guarantee that there's going to be a drug for your disease or that your action is going to result in a life-saving therapy. But I can tell you that if none of us take action, no progress is going to be made. Yeah. And that persistence literally saved your life. It did. Because re reading your memoir, that's what you did when you were in the hospital. How can listeners support your cause? Because 
It's amazing. I want to support your work. How, how can we do that? Thanks so much, Vaughn. So number one is you can go to cdcn.org slash corona, and that'll give you access to this free database that we've been building over the last year. Take a look at it, share it, um, help to spread the word about it. I think it's important that more people become aware of evidence around treatments for COVID. And while you're there, you can go to cdcn.org and, and learn about the work we're doing for Castleman's and for drug repurposing more generally. You could donate to our work to enable us to continue to do this. And also they they could donate right on that website. You can donate right on the website to our Castleman's our COVID and drug repurposing more generally by donating through cdcn.org. You can also check out Chasing My Cure. Our website's chasingmycure.com. The book's also available everywhere that books are sold, but going to chasingmycure.com, you can learn more about what we're doing. You can check out social media profiles and we give updates on, on the progress that we're making and just generally helping to spread the word about this opportunity for turning hope into action and pushing forward drug repurposing. Great. So, so inspiring. Now I could see why you, how you could like bench press 375 pounds back in the day. What, how do you, how do you keep motivated during this time? Cause it's hard, right? And it's like, really hard. it's hard for me mentally to continue to go into the emergency room and continue to do work. And you're involved with so many projects. How do you have all that energy? It's hard. I mean, I think that like everyone, I think we're, I and, and, and all of us are, are certainly exhausted because it's been tough. But I think that for me, I get two, I get motivation from two areas. The first I would say is kind of the positive reinforcement side. And that's that when I hear about a patient that's on a drug based on some work that we did in the lab weeks before, and now this patient in Chicago is leaving the ICU because of this drug that was in her, in her hospital pharmacy, that's the kind of positive reinforcement that just like energizes me. Like, okay, like we did it for me. We're doing it for, for these people. We, that, that is so huge for me. I I need those kind of boosts. And then on the other side, it's when I hear about, we worked really hard. We did experiments in the lab. We thought the drug was going to work. The patient got it and it didn't work. And the patient passed away. And you realize that like, we've got a long way to go. We've made a lot of progress. I'm alive because of our progress. Lots of patients have benefited from it, but wow, we still have work to do. And of course that's the case with COVID too, is that as a medical community, we've made progress, but we've still got a long ways to go. Amazing. I mean, for those listening, for everyone listening, David is the real deal. I have been following his work for years. Please go to his site, donate, support his work. I think he and his team have this ability to reimagine the future of how we actually find cures and redesign the way research is done and can help all of us uh, design ways to find uh, treatments. So thank you for your work, David. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. And I can't wait to continue to find more and more ways for us to work together. I just, I love the work that you do. And, and I love the idea of us finding more ways to work together. Awesome. You can find David Fagebaum on Instagram and Twitter to search for his last name. It's spelled F-A-J-G-E-N-B-A-U-M. And check out his book, Chasing My Cure. Design Lab was produced by Rob Pabisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.